You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to the latest news podcast for March. My name is Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and I'm here to talk about all the latest technical and regulatory news that advisors need to be aware of as it may impact uh, themselves and their clients. So um, I'm here with Kim Guest and Peter Wheatland, and we're going to be talking about different things. Kim, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the indexation of a number of super thresholds that will apply next financial year. Mm. And I'm also talking very briefly about some important changes to paid parental leave. Okay, exciting. Pete, what are you talking about? I'm going to be talking about the a new sort of controversial uh, measure that the government's proposing, and that's the extra tax being applied to earnings on super balances over $3 million. Oh, very controversial. Okay, well, can't wait to hear about that. And also I am going to be talking about a little unexpected quirk in those changes to the work test rules for people making personal deductible contributions that may mean some people are going to miss out um, from claiming tax deductions where they could previously have been able to do so. So if you want to know more about that, uh, listen in. Okay, all right, let's kick off with you, Pete. Um, Obviously, as you said, we've got an important announcement that was made regarding proposed increase of tax on earnings for super balances over three million. So can you give us a heads up? What's that about? Yeah, so there's been quite a bit of discussion about this in the media. Um, you know, the headlines are all about 30% tax on mm-hmm. earnings over three million, on balances over three million. And um, what the government's actually proposing is to apply um, an additional 15% tax on the earnings generated on super balances over $3 million. Okay, so earnings within super accumulation phase are already subject to tax at 15% under the current rules, right? So we know that. So this new measure could result in earnings in accumulation phase, well, at least some of them being taxed at up to 30% overall. Is that the new proposed measure? Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, now, it's... Important to remember the proposal, the proposed start date is 1st of July 2025. Mm-hmm. So it's not for quite some time. Um, and it's just a proposal at this stage. It's not yet law. Um, it hasn't, uh, it hasn't even been introduced to parliament yet. So it's, it's quite early days. And some of the detail on this might change, you know, between now, now and then. Okay. So in a lot of, um, in a lot of press we're reading and also the, the Treasury guidance on it, they're talking about earnings instead of income. So how are earnings going to be calculated for those members who are going to be impacted by this? I've got super balances over $3 million. especially as currently super funds usually calculate tax income at, like at the fund level and not at the member level. So how do we how do we start to look at these earnings if we don't actually have earnings for a particular member? Yeah, so the guidance that was provided by Treasury um, suggests that the earnings will be calculated based on the change in the individual's total super balance from Mm -hmm. year to year. And those earnings are going to be adjusted uh, to account for withdrawals and contributions. Um, And also 
there's a calculation to proportion those earnings to determine how much of those earnings uh, were on balances exceeding $3 million. Okay, so if the earnings are based on total super balance, which includes accumulation accounts as well as pension phase accounts, then this earnings tax could also apply to amounts in pension phase. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Now, another implication of using TSB rather than you know normal tax, uh, you know, basically on actual tax uh, taxable earnings, is that um, unrealized capital gains are also going to be included. Um, therefore, that this additional fifteen percent tax could apply to unrealized capital gains without accounting for any CGT discount either mm-hmm. um, for assets that were held longer than 12 months. Um, for example, um, if I held some shares and the value of those shares go up, that will cause my TSB to increase, which will then be factored into this earnings calculation, um, even if I haven't sold those shares yet. Yeah, obviously. So this is where it's getting very, very controversial. Um, what happens if the members total super balance goes down because, you know, obviously the TSB is going to be predicated on asset values as well as income, et cetera. So if we see negative markets and their TSB goes down from one year to the next, what happens there? Well, the, the earnings calculation operates the same way, but if the result of that calculation is negative, then that is a, a loss mm-hmm. and that loss will be able to be carried forward to future years to offset um, earnings in future years. Okay. Now, next question, is the tax paid by the super fund or the individual personally? Um, well, the Treasury document has suggested that it's going to be similar to how Division 293 tax is applied, which is the, the extra contributions tax for, for high earners. Mm-hmm. Um, so that suggests that the tax will be applied to the individual personally, but there'll be an ability to um, relate, choose to release money from super in order to pay that tax if they want to. Right. So very much like the Division 293 tax system. So, right. which, which actually, when you think about it, means that all of these rules, um, probably the way, the reason why the government's done it like this is because it's all pretty low cost because super funds are not going to have to go and change their systems, which is always expensive. Um, and it's quite, quite a low cost way of doing it. But that's when you get... Unfortunately, because of that, those uh, that controversial implication of unrealised capital gains being brought to account. Yeah. Um, okay. Thanks, Pete. Now, if you want to know more about this, uh, we've actually got a full podcast that goes for about half an hour with Kim. Kim grilling me about how these proposed rules are going to work. And like, well, Pete's given us a, a great summary of that. There's a whole bunch of really interesting implications that we really need to wait to see the detail on, such as, you know, if we're going to adjust our earnings, so the difference in total super balance between, you know, uh, calculated based on the difference between total super balance from one year to the next, then we obviously have to adjust that for any contributions and and withdrawals, because obviously they're going to impact total super balance and therefore, um, you know, distort that level of change. So therefore, the, the definition of what a contribution and a withdrawal is becomes critical. And there, it's really important because there's a whole bunch of things that, you know, don't necessarily meet the definition of a contribution under the tax ruling, but would impact uh, a member's total super balance. So things like insurance proceeds, for example, 
um, also death benefits paid as pensions, all these kinds of things. So during that pod, pod, in that podcast, we go and explore all the kind of issues that are going to potentially come out of these new rules. So go and give that a listen. But once again, thanks, Pete. Thanks, Pete. All right, um, moving on to what I'm going to talk about now, and this relates to this unexpected or potentially unintended outcome of the work test changes. So you may all be familiar with the fact that on 1 July 2022, the work test that applied to allow members to make contributions between the age of 67 and 74, including up to 28 days after the end of the month to which you turn 75, um, that was abolished. So we no longer need to worry about satisfying a work test all the way up until 28 days after the end of the month, we turn 75. So if you want to make a, a non-concessional contribution or personal injury contribution or contribution under the lifetime CGT cap uh, during that that age gap or that age age gap, is age it? Bracket. Age bracket, yep. Um, then we no longer need to worry about a work test. Obviously, we've got to worry about things like total sort of dumps and non-concessional contributions and things like that. But that is to say that they didn't get rid of the work test completely. What they actually did is transplanted that work test from the CIS regulations into the Tax Act. Uh, and that now applies as an additional age-based deductibility rule. So what that means is if I've got a client between 67 and 74, including up to 28 days after the end of the month, um, for them to claim a tax deduction, if they make the contribution on or after turning 67, then they now need to satisfy that same work test or work test exemption. So the work test being that you've done your 40 hours within 30 consecutive days. The only kind of change in the rules there is you just have to do that at any time in the year that you've made the contribution, uh, rather than previously you had to do the work before you made the contribution. So so it's, it's relaxed a little bit there. The work test exemption is exactly the same. You must have been able to satisfy the work test in the prior financial year your total super balance at the end of the previous financial year, so 30 June at the end of the previous financial year, was under $300,000. And you must not have utilised uh, the work test to either for the trustee to accept a contribution. So if you're relying on the, the work test exemption prior to the 1st of July 2022 to make a contribution, or you're relying on that work test exemption previously to claim a tax deduction, once you've used the work test exemption, essentially is what they're saying here, you can't use it again. It's a once-off one on only opportunity, right? So that's what they did to that. They moved all of those rules into the Tax Act. Now, once again, if we come back and look at what the rules say is you've got to do be gainfully employed, 40 hours, 30 consecutive days. And uh, when we look at the uh, the meaning of gainful employed, it says employed or self-employed for gain or reward in any occupation, calling, blah, 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 blah. I can't remember the exact wordings, but that that also hasn't, that definition of gainful employment is exactly the same in the, in the Tax Act that it is uh, in the CIS Act. So it would all apparently look exactly the same. So if I could rely on the work test by, well, by doing the work, if I could uh, actually make a contribution prior to the 1st of July 2022, I can get the contribution in and I can claim a tax deduction. And post 1 July, it's, whether you've done the work test is irrelevant for making the contribution, but if you want to claim a tax deduction, you're just looking basically at the same rules. However, there is this little kind of unintended consequence because when you look at that meaning of gainfully employed, it requires someone to be an employee or self-employed. So self-employed means you're a sole trader or in partnership and you're running a business. 
An employee means that you are a common law employee. So you're working under a contract of employment uh, for a in a contract of service, right? So to contrast that with some someone that's like a, an independent contractor that you engage to produce a result um, and you're just engaging someone to get the work done, you're not engaging any particular person so they have the right of delegation, um, that would be an independent contractor. Whereas when I'm employing Kim, telling Kim you've got to show up and you've got to work your four hour, 40 hours a week and you're going to show up in the office and you're going to use our equipment and you're going to do what I tell you to do in terms of getting the work that I want done done. And I don't really have the right of, you, you don't have a right of delegation, so you can't say to Pete, all right, Pete, Craig wants me to do this work. Now you have to go and do it. Um, so that's all of those things means you're in a, in a contract of service, right? Now, weirdly, there are certain types of jobs you can do out there that would look like you are in a contract of service. They, they make you look like an employee, but actually under common law, they're not. So a great example of this is directors of a company. The courts, there's a long established court principle that a director of a company is an office holder of that, com of that company and not an employee of that company, right? So technically, when we're looking at that 40 hours within 30 consecutive days, because you're not an employee, there's a risk there that your the the work you do to fulfil your uh, director's duties wouldn't actually count as gainful employment because you're not an employee, you're not self-employed, so therefore it doesn't count towards doing your 40 hours. Now, to deal with that issue and also things like superannuation guarantee, both the CIS Act in Section 15 as well, sorry, 15A, as well as the Superannuation Guarantee Administration Act, uh, Section 12, Subsection 2, include a whole bunch of people that wouldn't be employees under common law and say, yes, regardless of the fact that these people are not employees under common law, we're going to treat them as an employee for superannuation purposes. So therefore, a director of a company where they're entitled to remuneration actually has an SG obligation or is entitled to superannuation guarantee contribution. So the employer has an SG obligation. Um, so, but the really interesting thing here is when they move the work test out of the CIS regs into the Tax Act, they didn't incorporate the additional leg that said, okay, if you're under a common law employment arrangement, yes, you're covered off by the gainful employment definition, or if you're a, an employee for superannuation purposes, you're also treated as an employee for the work test. They failed to move across that superannuation definition of employee. So what that means is that someone like a director that could previously have done their work, which would have entitled to make the contribution and then uh, claim a tax deduction for the contribution post 1 July 2022, they can still make the contribution, but they can no longer actually claim a tax deduction for that because the Tax Act doesn't identify a director or anyone that is covered under the superannuation definition as an employee as satisfying the work test. It's only common law employees. Now, as a result, that means that, you know, certain people that used to be able to claim a tax deduction are not going to be able to claim a tax deduction from the 1st of July 2022. So this has been brought to the attention. So what we did is we took this to the SMSF Association said is, you know, it does, was the ATO really thinking this or was the government really thinking this? And so they sent uh, a clarification off to the ATO and the ATO came back and said, 
Uh, yes, we agree that these people wouldn't be able to claim a tax deduction, um, but we're not quite sure whether that was intended or not. And when you go back and look at the explanatory memorandum to the Act that actually introduced or moved those, those work test and work test exemption from the CIS regs into the Tax Act, um, the wording of that implies that this was just a mere formality. They're just transplanting the work test from one piece of legislation into another and there's no, you know, it, it should just work as it previously did, right? So it appears that this may be un, you know, unintended. So at the moment, while yes, these kinds of employees won't be able to claim a tax deduction, um, we're hoping that this is being brought up with Treasury and Government at the moment and we're hoping that it will be fixed. But it, at this stage, it hasn't been fixed if you've got someone that is a director um, and they're wanting to make a contribution, claim a personal tax deduction for it, I'd be seeking some, some clarification around that. Um, other types of employees potentially caught out by this, and this is the lovely one, is, um, is uh, Commonwealth Government parliament, parliamentarians, so members of Commonwealth Parliament. Um, technically, they're not an employee. How does that work? Because there's no identifiable employer. What does that mean? Well, because... Prime Minister and all our ministers and all members of Parliament are employees of all of us, <laughs> right? Although I'm pretty sure they don't look at it that way. Um, and therefore, there's no identifiable employer, so therefore they're not an employee. They're, they're employees of all of us. Um, so they're caught by this rule as well. So I'm kind of thinking that we, we might get this rule changed <laughs> when they realise that uh, they might be caught by it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, in the, in the interim, we just need to be aware of this uh, and look out for a potential fix in the legislation. If you've got any further inquiries about that, you can always give us a call, but there is also uh, a paper in this edition of First Tech Monthly that runs through in quite fine detail about actually what all of these rules mean and therefore looks at this particular quirk in the legislation and gives you the legislative basis for it. Um, and in fact, another reason why we think this is unintended is if you actually look at employers and the deductions they can claim for employees, um, there is included in that particular tax act provision the definition of employee for superannuation purposes. So while an employer could claim a tax deduction for uh, someone that they have to pay SG, you know, a director between age 67 and 74 or up to 28 days, um, the person themselves couldn't claim that deduction. So that's why we're really hoping that this is an unintended. All right, well, that's enough of listening to me. Okay, moving on to you, Kim. I believe super rates and thresholds for next financial year, 23-24, are out now. Very exciting. Yes, we've got the AWADI and the CPI figures, so we've been able to calculate um, the super rates and thresholds for next financial year. Okay, so let's start with what's not changing. So I believe concessional cap, non-concessional cap, not changing, remaining the same for next financial year. Yeah, that's right. So our $27,500 annual concessional cap is staying the same next year and our $110,000 annual non-concessional cap is also staying the same next financial year. Okay, well, that's weird. So concessional, non-concessional cap staying the same, but as we mentioned in last month's technical news, the general transfer balance cap is jumping by $200,000 to 1.9. Yeah, that's right. So we're getting a quite a big jump in the general transfer balance cap because that is based on CPI. And as we know, um, inflation has been quite high, so we're getting a big $200,000 jump in the general transfer balance cap. But our concessional and non-concessional caps, they're not based on 
inflation, they're actually based on wages growth or a wadi, and that increase has not been so high in wages growth. So our concessional and non-concessional caps are not changing. Yeah, yeah. So inflation running high, the cost of going to the pub and buying a beer has gone up, but my pack, yes. pay packet hasn't. No. So, so that's kind of what's going on there because my yeah. paper, the caps are based on my pay packet. Um, mm-hmm. They're not going up, but because uh, my beer is based on the cost of, well, inflation. transfer balance scout is based on the cost of uh, in, impact of inflation, mm-hmm. and it's going up like my beer oh, is going up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about the impact of total superbalance on non-concessional contributions? Are those thresholds linked? Yeah, they are. So this is interesting. So. As you know, like in the current financial year, if you've got a total super balance that exceeds 1.7 million, you're not able to make non-concessional contributions anymore because um, you know it's it's tied to that general transfer balance cap, which is 1.7 million this year. So next financial year, because the general transfer balance cap is going up to 1.9 million, also that threshold where you can make non-concessional contributions is also going up to 1.9 million. So if your total super balance is below 1.9 million next year, you can make non-concessional contributions. Okay, oh, and but what about the ability to use Brinkford rule for non-concessional contributions? Yeah, well, those thresholds are also jumping up by 200 grand. So in the current year, uh, 2022-23, um, I have to have a total super balance below 1.48 million to be able to bring forward three years and 1.59 million to bring forward two years. Um, but due to the thresholds jumping up, um, that's actually going to... 1.68 million for two years yep. and 1.79 million. So you just add $200,000. 200000 yeah. to each one. All right. So um, if I'm someone that had, you know, more than 1.7 at the end of last financial year, my non-concessional cap is zero. As long as I've got less than 1.9 come 30 June, I'm, I'm going to have a non-concessional cap turn on again for me next That's year. right. Yeah. So there could be an opportunity there for people with large super balances yeah. to contribute that couldn't previously. Yeah, and if they're between 67 and 75, well, we don't need to worry about satisfying a work test unless we want to make a kind of tax deduction, unless they're a director. Uh, I was listening, (laughs) yeah, I got that bit. (laughs) Okay, um, okay, so that will be important for for those clients with with large balance. Any other interesting thresholds for next year? Yeah, so lots of the the thresholds are going up, and I won't go through all of them. Um, We've got a, you know, a... Did you know on the um, first tech side, and it's also in our latest news if you want to look up any thresholds. But I guess some interesting ones are the low rate cap is increasing from 230000 to 235 next year, and the defined benefit income cap is increasing from 106250 to 118750 next year. So that's okay. quite a big jump. Well, thinking about that low income cap, um, that's really only relevant. Yeah, yeah the, sorry, the low rate cap. Yeah. It's only relevant for another year or so, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. I mean, once um, the preservation age reaches age 60, you're not going to have anyone pulling out money under but, 60, are you? Yeah. You're needing the low rate cap. Right. Because also you don't get the low rate cap if you're accessing the money prior to preservation. Uh, well, yeah, prior to preservation age. Yeah, under like the TPD or whatever. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So, or permanent incapacity. So, mm. yeah. Um, so, unless they start moving that preservation age up again, yeah, which is possible, then, I guess. Yeah, it's mm. kind of going to be a redundant uh, threshold at some point in the future. Mm. Um, now, you also mentioned, I think you mentioned the uh, the defined benefit income cap. Yeah, so that's, that's jumping up quite a bit from 106,250 to 118,750. And that's really just that transfer balance cap. 
divided by 16. Yeah. So that's why we're seeing that quite significant jump there. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so if advisors want to look through the new thresholds for next year, where can they go? Yeah, so as I mentioned, they're in our latest news on the front page of the First Tech site, and we've also got a Digi Know with all the thresholds in there. Okay, so jump onto the website and uh, go crazy. Yes, that's it. Okay, now moving on to another topic. I understand legislation has passed, which expands, uh, what is it, paid parental leave? Yeah, so just briefly, um, this is a fairly important change and it applies to, you know, all babies that are born after 1st of July 23. And it's a it's a pretty positive change. Like under the current rules, we had two different payments. We had parental leave pay, which was generally paid to the mother and dad and partner pay, which was generally paid to the father. Um, and really they've sort of got rid of that distinction and tried to make it more flexible so that it can be used by the partners um, more flexibly to, right. to, you know, care for the child. Yeah, so that's good. yeah, they're getting rid of dad and partner pay and they're just having parental leave pay which can be used flexibly by the family so that the parents can share that leave between them. Okay. Yeah. Um, another change, which is good, is they're increasing the amount of parental leave pay. So from 18 weeks to 20 weeks um, from the 1st of July, 23. And it's also increasing gradually after that to 26 weeks by 2026. Okay. Are they also making some changes to the income test? Yeah, so currently there's an individual income test of 156,647 and that'll continue to apply. But if they don't meet that individual income test, the, the change is, is that there's now a combined family income test that will apply um, from the 1st of July 23 of 350,000. So if the family's income is below that 350, then they may still qualify for the scheme. Okay, so that sounds like... New schemes going to provide a bit more flexibility for families, so so mm. that's good news. Yeah. Um, all right, so I think that pretty much wraps it up. Yep. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Kim, and thanks, Pete, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventus Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.